Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Mark and John decided to begin their Gospels with Jesus as an adult. Only Luke and Matthew decided to tell us a story about the birth of Jesus. Luke makes it very clear from the beginning of his Gospel that he's writing to common people. He even says at one point, the common people heard Jesus gladly. Matthew is writing to try to convince a Jewish Christian community that Jesus was even greater than Moses, even greater than David, even greater than Solomon. As he began to write his account of the birth of Jesus, this particular writing came to his mind. Writing from the third portion of the scroll of Isaiah, now remember that we believe today the scroll of Isaiah is not the work of one writer, but three. The first part, written by an 8th century prophet who has seen the northern tribes, ten of them devastated by the Assyrians, is frightened to death that the Assyrians will march farther south and do the same horrible things to the people of Judah. 135 years later, it was not the Assyrians, but a now stronger power even farther east, the Babylonians, forerunners of today's Iraqis, defeated the Assyrians and drove south on to Judah, did in fact lay siege to the city of Jerusalem, uh, tumbled down its walls, burned its gates off their hinges, plundered the temple and then burned it, plundered the palace and burned it, led all the king's sons in before him so that he could see what they were about to do. They killed them all. There would be no heirs to the throne. Then after he had seen that horrible scene, his eyes were torn out and he was force marched with the best and brightest all the way to Babylon. Fifty years later, a new rising power even farther east, modern-day Iran, the ancient Persians, under their king Cyrus, defeated the Babylonians and told the Jews they could go home. The few bedraggled bands who made their way all the way back to Jerusalem and Judah found it as they had expected. No one had rebuilt the temple. It still lay in ruins 50 years later. No one had rebuilt the palace. It still charred members from 50 years before. The walls had not been repaired. The gates not re built and attached to the hinges, the city was absolutely vulnerable, and the Canaanites had re-established themselves. They had all the best watering holes. They had the olive groves, the vineyards, and the best and most fertile fields. 
It was a horrible time. And this writer, that third one, writes into that situation, that devastatingly depressing situation. Arise, shine. Look, they're bringing your sons home to you. They're bringing your daughters home to you. The abundance of the sea they're bringing to you. Caravans of camels bringing gold and frankincense to you. Matthew decided that had not happened yet. Almost 600 years later, hadn't really happened. But now at the little town of Bethlehem, those wonderful promises he believed were about to be realized. Arise, shine, your light has come. Number one, Christmas Eve day, I was here for all the big services, all four of them, of course. I picked up my Wall Street Journal that's thrown outside the doors of the church every morning. And here was an article, Do Christians Overemphasize Christmas? I thought the article was probably going to say, absolutely. But in fact, he was taking issue with another article he had read in Christian Century Magazine, which I had also read, saying, yes, absolutely, we do. And I sat there thinking about our Advent season at Boston Avenue. Had we overemphasized? The Sunday before Advent began, we had a workshop for your children and grandchildren not to teach them how to get ready for the coming of Santa Claus, but how to get ready for the coming of God's Son, Jesus of Nazareth. We had a beautiful big wreath hung in the Bishop's Hall, and the next four Sunday mornings we had one of our families, a different one each Sunday, with little children reading Scripture, moms and dads reading prayers, all of us singing, a brass ensemble, Jackie Reichman leading us, a child climbing up the ladder, lighting first candle, the next week second candle, third candle, the next week the fourth. We were trying hard to do the right things. One Sunday afternoon late, we had lessons and carols two times. Some of Tulsa's finest instrumentalists and finest vocalists singing in our great hall with girls and boys and women and men reading from God's all-important book, with him an anthem anticipating the coming of our Lord. We were trying hard. One Sunday night, we had the longest night service here. We read the names of all our dearest friends from within our church family who had died this past year. And you were invited to come and light your own candle, post it, in memory and honor of that person you held closest in your own heart. Dr. Tankersley spoke to us. We had opportunity to come to the table. We were trying really hard. The next Sunday night, we had Christmas portion of Handel's Messiah. The weather really cooperated this year, and the people started coming, just pouring into the building. Finally, they were standing around the walls up top, the ushers were asking me, where can we get more chairs? They were putting folding chairs in the back as quickly as they could. I started down the hallway looking for one of our custodians, and I saw Aaron Studebaker's dad coming up the main stairway. Dr. Studebaker's been head of choral music at Northeastern University for years and years. 
he was coming to hear his daughter sing. He couldn't get in. He was in that foyer there, about six people deep. When it was finally her turn to sing her part alone, he was sort of leaning in on folks just so he could get a little glimpse of her face. That many people singing, praying, asking God Almighty to come into our midst. We tried really hard. Christmas Eve, we were here 2 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. Lighting candles, we had Mary and Joseph and shepherds and wise men and children read and teenagers read and adults read. We all sang together. We tried really hard. This author is saying, but, but wait, it's all about the crucifixion. It's all about the resurrection. Well, not, it's, it's not all about that. It's also about the incarnation. That Almighty God decided to birth himself into the human family in a way he never had before and never would again except in this Jesus Christ. Do you think we don't make that connection? I think we do. A couple of days before Christmas, I was making the hospital rounds. One of the persons we had in the hospital, dear member of our church, she's in her mid-80s. She's been a widow for some years now. She has a daughter, son-in-law, two grandchildren here in the city. She's one of that World War II generation. She just believes you'll come to church every week. She volunteered during the week. She recorded your attendance week after week after week, and now she was really, really ill. When I walked into the room, a nurse was fluffing her pillow, pulling a spread up over her legs, and she was being the same person I've known. She said, oh, Sarah, thank you. You are so kind and sweet to me. Why, Dr. Big, she said, do you know Sarah? I said, no. She said, Sarah's so wonderful to me. I said, Merry Christmas, Sarah, and she left the room. And we visited for a moment, and then I said, I'd like to say a Christmas prayer with you. Is there anything else any of us can do for you before I pray and go? And she asked, would you read me the Christmas story from my Bible? It was right there by our bed. I said, I would love to. You think she didn't understand that the birthing of this baby had something to do with death and life after death? It has everything to do with it. It all hooks together. Well, if you're really going to understand this passage, I think you have to go backward a little bit, see what this author had been talking about. Listen to these words. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day. Whoa. Preachers love this, of course. It's a good time to talk about being in church. You know what's happening to Christianity across America? It's not just here in Tulsa. It's not just at Boston Avenue. That World War II generation believed you're supposed to be in church every week. And baby boomers, as a group, and all those since have decided, if I'm there once or twice a month, a quarter, three or four times a year, I'm active. It's hard to build Sunday school classes and choirs, musical groups out of people who think 
once every six, eight weeks is enough. The southern tribes of Judah were so afraid they would become non-Jews as their cousins to the north had become non-Jews. They had become a part of the Assyrian culture. They ceased to exist as a separate people. The southern tribes were trying to figure out what do we have to do to be Jews, and they decided on three primary things. Continue to circumcise all our little boys on the eighth day after they're born. Eat kosher. Observe the Sabbath. Every Friday when the sun goes down, light the candles, say the prayers, break the bread, share the cup. Familiar with Dr. Francis Collins? Dr. Francis Collins was appointed by the president to head up the National Institute of Health, Bethesda, Maryland. Those who are interested in DNA and RNA, they know the name Dr. Francis Collins. He's been a pioneer in studying the human genome. Grew up in the Shenandoah Valley, a small town. Went to the University of Virginia, received a bachelor's degree in chemistry. Did really well, went from there to Yale University, master's degree, Ph.D. in chemistry. He said at that point, I was an atheist. I was convinced there is no God because I'd been hearing science ask all of its questions and I'd been hearing other scientists trying to answer those questions. And then I decided I wanted to be a medical doctor. I went south again, University of North Carolina School of Medicine. And while I was a medical student, having to work around sick and dying people, I discovered the questions they were asking in the science department at Yale were not the questions these people were asking. There were other questions. And I started asking those questions. Does life have a meaning? Does life have a purpose? Is there a God? I had a little time off from my rotations. I decided to go hiking in the Shenandoah Mountains. And as I hiked, I had a revelation in my heart. In my deepest heart, God said, I am, I am. Your life has meaning. Your life has purpose. He said, some criticize me because I talk about faith, but I know when and where to talk about faith. Those who work with me on DNA and RNA, all the work that we're trying to do to solve some of our biggest medical problems, in the laboratory, I ask scientific questions and try to find scientific answers. In the other arena of my life, I'm asking, does life have meaning? Does it have purpose? Is there a God? And I found the answer. I have it. You can have it. If you send your kids to school, the scientists will ask scientific questions and give scientific answers. If you let them play Little League Baseball on Sunday morning, let them play football on Sunday morning, let them play soccer on Sunday morning, let them go to gymnastics on Sunday morning, they won't ask the other questions, nor will they have answers. 
number three. If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted. He's not writing to people who have a lot. He's writing to people who think they don't have enough. The Canaanites have taken it all. Well, there's some among you who have even less. Don't forget them. Don't forget the hungry and the afflicted. Keep caring. The other day I picked up my Wall Street Journal early one morning, and here was an article by Peggy Noonan asking, how many of you are going to sing Old Lang Syne and not have a clue what you've just said? And so in her article she said, the first person we know who put down Old Lang Syne was the Scottish poet Robert Burns. But he didn't claim they were his words. In fact, when he wrote them down in 1878, he said, I got these from an old man. He didn't say from whom. He wrote them down. They're in Scottish dialect. They're difficult to say and maybe even difficult to understand. She said, Old Lang Syne means long, long ago or old, long since, perhaps. Old, long since. The important thing to know is that the Scottish folk usually sing it holding hands in a circle. And they ask, should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? No. No. And then the verses after verses talk about how we've been together and how we've been apart. But here we are again. So I stick out my hand and you stick out your hand and let's drink a cup of kindness. To drink a cup of kindness. Well, listen, this is an English rendering. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? We, too, have run about the slopes and picked the daisies fine, but we've wandered many a weary foot since old lang syne. We, too, have paddled in the stream from morning sun till dine, but seas between, between us broad have roared since old lang syne. But there's a hand, my trusty friend, and give us a hand of thine, and we'll take a goodwill draught once more. We'll take a cup of kindness yet for old Lang Syne. So arise, shine. Rabbi Gunter Plout said this means make your face beam because you believe the best is yet to be. Jesus would say all those years later, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do people light candles and put them under bushels. No, on candlesticks so that they give light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Arise, shine. Understand that this incarnation, incarnate, in flesh, does in fact lead to crucifixion and resurrection. You're familiar with Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? She married an American years later named Ross. She was born Elizabeth Kubler, Zurich, Switzerland, 1926. When she was 19, she had lived through all those horrors of World War II 
she was in college, now working with a volunteer organization in the summer, going into the devastated areas where the war finally had ended. And one of those trips took her group to Lublin, Poland. Lublin, Poland, the best preserved Holocaust site. Is it Lublin? It's called Majdanek. Gail and I have seen eight of the camps. It was the first one we saw because members of Tulsa's Jewish community had told me when I asked, it's the best preserved of them all. The Russian armies were trying to get to Berlin from the east as we were trying to get to Berlin from the west. They stormed across the Vistula River in Poland and raided this concentration camp, the first big one to be liberated in the summer of 1944. Many of the others not till the spring of 45. They found it, Majdanek. The Germans had left meticulous records and the Russians wanting the world to remember forever what the Nazis had done to the rest of the civilized world as they saw it, sprayed the whole camp with something that's sort of like creosote, and it looks like it did in July 1944. Rabbi Sherman helped Gail and me make a contact. A guide met us in Warsaw. The next morning drove us to Lublin. We spent five hours walking through the camp with our guide, we saw only two other people the whole time. It's not a touristy place like Auschwitz, Birkenau, some of the others. It is so preserved. It's a horrible place. Once they learned how to gas them, just the right amount of gas for the right amount of people, they gassed 18,000 Jews in one day. Kept a good record of it, 18,000 in one day. Before they got the gas chambers and the ovens running, they were shooting them in the head with rifles. In one day, a bulldozer made a huge trench, and Jewish men were made to strip off all their clothes and go lie down side by side, face down in the ditch. They shot them in the back of the head. The next group, go lie down on the top of them, and they shot them. Six hundred they killed in that trench in one day. Elizabeth Kubler, 19 years old, went to Madonic. Looking, it would shape her life. She would go into medical school. She would devote her life to what are people thinking when they know they're close to death? What are they thinking? And for those who come back from a near-death experience, what did they experience? The rest of her life. When she got to Madonic, she started looking in every little wooden hut that had held these prisoners for signs of what were they thinking and feeling when they heard all those rifle shots all day long and knew their little barracks might be next. What were they thinking? You know what she found? That these prisoners had scratched into the wood butterflies. Butterflies. Breaking from a cocoon and rising on the warm winds of the rising sun. Arise, shine, your Lord has come. 